You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you about our sponsor this week. It's a podcast called Breach. Uh, So Breach is a podcast that takes you inside the world's biggest hacks, how they were done, why they were done, what's at stake. Uh, Their second season is about the biggest breach of all time, uh, the Equifax hack, uh, in which they lost over 145 million social security numbers. If this sounds like a scandal that you would find entertaining, listen to season two of Breach, the Equifax story. This time it's personal. On the podcast app of your choice, just search for Breach, B-R-E-A-C-H. Also bringing you the show this week, it's Squarespace. They're the only place to take your idea into a reality. They make it easier than ever to launch a passion project, even if you're selling something or you need a blog. Whatever it is, they've got a beautiful template for it that allows you to customize just about anything. And if you get stuck, their 24-7 award-winning customer support will be there to help. Go to squarespace.com slash longform and you will get a free trial. And if you do end up launching the site, use the offer code longform and you'll save 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. Here's Max Linsky. Here's Aaron Lammer. Hi. Hey, you guys. Hey, hey. Uh, repeat guest. Repeat guest, our old friend Patrick Radden Keefe, who was on a pretty early uh, show, I would say. I, I want to say episode seven, but that could wow. be wrong. Wow. Sounds earlier than I even was thinking. You guys um, keep talking, I'll look it up. He is uh, He's a staff writer at The New Yorker. He has a book out right now called Say Nothing which is about the troubles in Northern Ireland. But as we talk about at some length, it's not actually a book just about the troubles. It's also uh, a murder mystery of sorts. Uh, It's an amazing book. I wanted to have him back to talk about it. And he had a lot of fascinating things to say, as always. He previously wrote uh, The Snakehead, which is an incredible book about uh, a um, human smuggling ring uh, based in New York City's own Chinatown. And he's also had uh, a really great run of New Yorker stories that we dropped in on those as well. Incredible run. Like a prolific run. Yes. Episode 20, for the record. It was episode 20. You know who's been supporting this show since before episode 20? MailChimp. I think they were, at that point, um, advertising Tiny Letter. Uh, 
Now they are encouraging you to go full-size letter with an email newsletter from MailChimp. Uh, it won't even cost you anything up until you reach a certain number of subscribers. So there's no reason not to start one today. Thank you, MailChimp. Here's Evan and Patrick Radden-Keefe. Patrick, welcome back to the Long Form Podcast. It's great to be back. <laughs> yeah, I think it was seven years ago. Was it that long? It was 2012. I don't know if we've reached the seven-year mark, but yeah. uh, it was di- every, everything was different everything was back different. then. It was like a lifetime ago. Um, but you, you've been busy. Uh, <laughs> just to name a couple of things, you basically forced someone to resign from their position in the Trump administration, <laughs> for one thing. Um, you've written a ton of stories and sent a too many for us to cover but also you have this book out called say nothing which i have to say i would have read this book anyway because i know you but if you had told me in the abstract there's a book about the troubles and it covers you know this historical period i i think i would have i don't think i would have read it uh-huh. I I said, you know like <laughs> i know enough about this i know jerry adams like i know george mitchell like i know what happened I got here. the idea yeah you probably could not get me to read a history of the troubles and so when I did start reading it, it blew my mind because it was, it just showed me like, if you can get close enough to something and you can get close enough to the characters that you can just complete, I was completely wrapped into the story so in an insane say that. way. So I want to talk about the book first and then there are some articles that I want to talk about, but you don't sort of show up in the book until the end. And when you do, you talk about, you know, having Irish heritage, but not really being tied to Ireland and sort of getting into the story and I, I kind of wanted to start there like what made you pick up this story from a reporter's perspective in the first place yeah so I mean part of the reason I did that at the end so there's 30 chapters in the book and the first 29 are kind of historical omniscient I'm not in there at all you don't even get the New Yorker style you know Evan told me mm-hmm. um, and then chapter 30 starts in the first person and there are a couple of reasons for that I mean one was that I uh I had made a discovery I had to describe in the first person, which we can talk about. But um, but part of it was actually weirdly that my British publisher had said, you got to talk about your name. And she just said, you know, she really? said, yeah, she said a, a book about the troubles by a guy named Patrick Keefe. If you don't address it, uh, people will, will draw conclusions one way or the other. And so on some level, I, what I wanted to do was just deal with it and set it aside and essentially say, you know, my father's grandparents came over, you know, in the 19th century. So that's the extent of my connection to Ireland. Yeah, and like I gr- you don't have a side. I don't have a side. And and that was important for me, I mean, for a variety of reasons, in part because I think that the, the sort of outsider perspective actually ends up being important to the book. So I wanted to make that clear. In terms of how I came to it, yeah, I mean, I came to it in the context of my day job. I was looking around for pieces in The New Yorker. In 2013, this woman died. Her name was Dolores Price. And it's her face on the cover of the book. And she'd had this completely over-the-top life. Mm-hmm. Um, she grew up in a kind of IRA family, going back generations. And in the late 1960s, she sort of rebelled against her parents, who were these big IRA supporters, and she wanted to peacefully protest and bring about change in Ireland through peaceful protest. But... When she went out to do that, she went on this big peaceful march and she got beaten up in an ambush. She, she then joins the IRA and becomes the first woman to be this sort of like a real frontline soldier in the group. 
and leads a bombing mission to London and gets caught and goes to prison and goes on hunger strike and comes out of prison and marries a movie a star. And just Yeah, she, and became this kind of, yeah, a real, almost a kind of pinup for a certain type of radical politics at that time. And then the thing that was most appealing to me was that in 2013, I'm reading this obituary, and in her final years, she had looked back and started to reconsider some of the things she did when she was young, and she was very traumatized. And so that was kind of an appealing idea, the notion that you could track somebody's life. You could sort of look at the whole sweep of the troubles through a handful of lives, not just her, but some others. But also I had just kind of wondered, you know, you're 20 years old and you're out there on the front lines fighting a what you perceive to be a righteous fight. But how do you feel about those things you did when you're 40 and you're married and you got kids? How do you feel when you're in your 50s and you're looking back? Um, so the opportunity to sort of track a handful of lives over decades mm-hmm. seemed appealing. And when we talked so many years ago, you know, we talked about getting into these stories where it's difficult to get people to talk and these networks, whether it's inside the government or, or criminal networks. But this one seemed to offer this particular challenge, it seemed to me, from a reporting perspective, where, I mean, these are people who there's a whole culture of not not just not speaking to the press, but being killed for being accused of being a tout of an informant. And there's a lot in the book about, you know, people who are in fact murdered for that. And so when you started, what kind of approach did you have in terms of now you're going to show up in Ireland and you're going to go to former (laughs) revolutionaries or even some of them, you know, still still involved involved in the struggle and say, okay, I'm I'm here from America right, yeah. with an Irish name. Do you mind if I record this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So where did, the, how did you find your way into that world? Slowly. I mean, look, on some level, I, I, this was probably true last time we talked and it's, if anything, more true now. I do write arounds all the time. I like doing them. I think magazines should assign more of them. So I'm not daunted by the prospect of, doing a big piece of writing in which the central figure or figures won't talk to me or as in the case in this book some of them are dead Mm -hmm. Uh, the reporting process on this was weird just because at the heart of the book it's really about two women so there's Dolores Price who I described and then this woman Jean McConville who was a mother of 10 and a widow in Belfast living in a housing project and in 1972 she disappeared and a gang of people came into her apartment. They dragged her out in front of her children. They said she would be back, that they just wanted to talk to her, but she never came back. And it was the IRA that took her and killed her. And part of what happens in the book is that you meet these two different women and you realize that their fates are intertwined, that Dolores Price is going to end up having something to do with that murder. And um, what was strange for me is that this happened before I was born. (laughs) It happened almost half a century ago. And I would go to Belfast and start asking people about it. And you could see the fear on people's faces. And so this notion that this event that's older than I am still felt so radioactive in the present day was challenging from a reporting point of view, but also at every step along the way made me feel as though it was good that I was doing this project, that this was not a kind of inert, stale history story I was telling. It was a a story about something that was kind of vivid and palpable and menacing even now. And did you have, 
access to her family, her kids from the beginning, or is that something you had to work into as you went along? It took some time. It took some time. Some of them did, some of them didn't. Some of them wanted to talk at the beginning and then not subsequently. Um, Her kids are incredibly traumatized. So these are 10 children who were orphaned, you know, with one squeeze of the trigger back in 1972. And they ended up in orphanages. Awful things happened to some of them in some of those orphanages. Some of them have wrestled with drugs and alcohol, PTSD. Um, You know, the best I can do is try and go in and be as sensitive as possible and tell them what I tell everyone, which is that I want to get the truth of the story and as much fidelity as I can. And I'll keep coming back, you know, that I'm sort of the, the shoe leather reporting thing means a lot to me and I'll try and do the story justice. So in any culture where there's kind of an inhibition about talking, this is tends to be the case with me. It's all sideways, right? So I got to know some people who knew them and I made the case to these friends of theirs and they then passed it along and then there was a sort of slow process of feeling me out. There's an unbelievable scene with one of the kids getting into a, I think a taxi Taxi, cab that's driven by one of the people that he recognizes was one of the people that took his mother away when he was a kid. It's just like I had to put it down at that moment. And gathering those types of stories, I mean, did you feel that you were, things came pouring out when you got people to talk, like they'd been waiting to talk about this for years, or yes. you were prying them loose? No, I mean, things came out. It's a very, I mean, look, the some of this is quite specific to Northern Ireland and maybe even to Belfast, but... So the book's called Say Nothing. The title is from a Seamus Heaney poem, Whatever You Say, Say Nothing. And on the one hand, it's true that there's this culture of silence. On the other hand, everybody talks. <laughs> and they often talk beautifully. Um, you know, there is definitely a poetry in the language over there, which as a reporter is kind of amazing because you sit there with your notebook and... Um, people say these things that uh, in your wildest dreams, you wish that that the people you normally interview in, the, in your day job uh, could be so articulate. But, um, you know, it's funny, when I went over there the first time, I, I talked to David Remnick, my boss, and he had gone... <laughs> he had gone 20 years earlier to write a piece about the peace process in Jerry Adams for The New Yorker. And as I was leaving Belfast that first time, he said, oh, you're going to love it. It's a reporter's dream. It's just like Israel. Everybody talks, 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 talks. <laughs> And it wasn't quite that straightforward. I mean, I often had to, it often took a fair amount of coaxing to get people to sit down and talk to me. But when they did, those surreal details, like that scene in the taxi, did come tumbling out. And that, I think, is a feature of just the kind of place Belfast is, just that it's so small. And so you have you have a place where there was this three-decade war, basically. And then peace came. And everybody still lives right next door to each other. And so inevitably you get these kind of surreal encounters. Mm-hmm. And you you grappled with something that I, I have struggled with uh, recently, which is just you obviously have an incredible depth of reporting in here, but you also have people's memories and you're dealing with memories of people who sometimes, you know, in the case of the sort of like revolutionaries in winter, they get older and they have PTSD and they misremember things or they, they're drinking there's all these complexities in terms of how you figure out what really happened and i felt like you sort of dealt with that in the text a little bit but i'm interested in as a broader view how do you solve the problem you can't solve it but like how do you approach the problem of you've got all these memories and oftentimes they conflict 
Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this was a big thing. I thought about this all the time. So part of what I was trying to do with the book is write something that's just a great read. And, you know, I think about this with my pieces too, but like I don't take for granted for a second the attention of any reader. And I feel as though I'm always wanting to work for that. And one oddity of the troubles is that there's this vast literature. There's so many books. It's so daunting. Your bibliography is I mean, it's a, ridiculous. A testament to yeah. That. And I've read them all. And, but the strange thing is there aren't that many great books. And I think there's a bunch of reasons for that, a lot of which come down to kind of craft questions and how you tell the story. So part of what I was trying to do was keep the narrative very fluid and lean and the hard thing is you're in a situation in which, A, there's exactly what you're talking about, which is people remember things differently, there's differences of opinions, and then B, it's this incredibly vexed political situation. So you tell the story of any given incident, and if you, you tell the Republican point of view, well, the loyalists you know, have an entirely different take. Yeah, everyone has their own facts. Yeah, exactly. They do. And um, so the challenge for me was how do you deal with that? Because if you start introducing all those caveats in the text itself, you kill the book. The book mm-hmm. dies. People mm-hmm. will not read it. And where I came out was that I occasionally will introduce differing interpretations or build in small qualifications. And there, a lot of them are kind of almost hidden in the text. Like mm-hmm. you'll see them if you're reading closely. You know, Some people would later recall, <laughs> if I'm saying that, it's implicit that others might have a difference of opinion. And then in the notes, all those qualifications are are there. So what I had to do was kind of pick what seemed like the most plausible version of the truth, tell that, and then there's 100 pages of endnotes. So yeah. if you're inclined to a more scholarly approach, it's all there. It's just in the, in the back. But I've just been thinking about this a lot because I feel like the pat answer to that is always someone will say, well, you just check it. You check it. If your mother says you she right. loves you, you check it. But like, these types of stories and you're talking to people about things they did 20 years ago or even 10 years ago and the what we know about memory like some things are not possible to check and the question is should you not use it at all because you can't check that this person was in this meeting at this date at this time yeah i mean i could give you boy there's so many specific examples of that dilemma but i'll give you one there's a guy who's a minor character in the book named francie mcguigan and Francie was an IRA member. He was a friend of that woman, Dolores Price. And he was one of about a dozen guys who got picked up in 1971 by the British and basically taken away and tortured. These guys, it became a famous case. They're known as the Hooded Men. And it's kind of eerily reminiscent of what happened actually with the U.S. torture program. But basically, they, the British Army targeted these guys. They put hoods over their heads, they put them in helicopters, they brought them to a kind of undisclosed location, and then they subjected them to a whole series of techniques, which look a lot like what we were doing to people in places like uh, Abu Ghraib and black sites in Afghanistan. So I interviewed Francie. He's a wonderful guy, still around, sweet, older man. And I interviewed other people who were among the hooded men with him. But I also looked back at all the interviews that Francie's given over the decades. And there's this moment where he's in the helicopter with a hood over his head and he doesn't know where they're going and he hears the helicopter door open and the helicopter's still moving it's in the air and suddenly he's pushed out and he's got a hood over his head so he doesn't know how high they are now it turns out the helicopter is hovering just over the ground 
And in some accounts, Francis McGuigan talks about falling out and bouncing off the ground. Mm. And in others, he talks about falling out and getting caught almost immediately by people who were there. And it's hard, right? Because that's an incredibly vivid moment and I want it to sing on the page, but I need to kind of pick a version. You know, it's not gonna work at all if I say, that's how it could have happened, but it might have also <laughs> happened like this. And um, so what I did in that instances, and there's a bunch of these, is I tell you about him coming out and getting caught. And then you go to the end notes and I say, he has told this story, you know, multiple different ways over the years. Now to me, that doesn't mean he's unreliable. This was an incredibly traumatic experience and there's studies on this, you know, memory is complicated when you have these types of moments. So I think the most truthful approach that I could come up with is I'm gonna tell it the way that it seems to me most likely it happened and then build in all those qualifications in the back. Hey, this is Aaron, your co-host. I'm going to pause things here briefly to tell you a little bit about this week's sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch a project that you are passionate about. could be a new business, a showcase for your work, a place to publish content, sell stuff, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Squarespace is the right tool for just about everything. They've got beautiful templates by world-class designers. They let you customize them, uh, e-commerce, analytics, optimize for mobile. And if any of it is unclear to you, they have 24-7 award-winning customer support. They've empowered millions of people from designers to lawyers to artists to gamers restaurants, gyms, all of them have used Squarespace to turn a great idea into something real. So go to squarespace.com slash longform for a free trial and we're ready to launch. Use the offer code longform and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com slash longform offer code longform. Thank you to Squarespace. Uh, They've supported the show for a long time and we appreciate it. Here is Evan back with Patrick Radden Keefe. How many times did you go? Seven. How do you make time for that? As someone yeah. who uh, has As children parent, and yeah. now, and I know that you have children, I'm interested in the just the basic logistics of going to Ireland seven times over how long? What was the four years? Over four years complicated i mean i because i have two kids i have a wife who's got a busy job and actually until recently she had a job that entailed a lot of travel for her so we sort of joked that you know we'd we would like pass each other at jfk <laughs> and hand to the children um back and forth i don't know i mean it, it was a challenge but i squeezed in trips that would be you know i did trips that were as short as four days and then trips that were as long as almost two weeks mm. um and yeah, I don't really know how I did it, to be honest with you, because I was—I mean, I was juggling the my New Yorker pieces as well. But, yeah, but it, I would just occasionally have to kind of carve out something. And there were moments where um, there were court hearings, or there were people who suddenly agreed to talk to me after long periods of time. So there were these decisive points on the calendar where I just knew, and and just you know, my wife understood and accommodated the idea that 
you know, if I say, oh, geez, this thing just happened six weeks from now, I got to be in Belfast. And I'd but you would there. generally have that kind of notice, not someone calling you up and saying, okay, now tomorrow I'm ready to talk tomorrow. Yeah, that, hap- that happened, I think, once, maybe twice over the four years where I had a very short. Um, the thing that happened that's funny, I mean, these are the things that nobody ever talks about, but they matter so much. Really late in the game, when I'd already been, when I was almost done with the book, Norwegian Air started flying this incredibly cheap flight direct to <laughs> Belfast from um, from the airport up at Newburgh, New York. Oh. And uh, it's like 250 bucks round trip. It's incredible. It's a very no really, frills airline. You wrote a whole story about Newburgh. I did. No, I know. It was uh, all, all roads come back to Newburgh. But it was one of those, this is like a year ago they started doing this and it completely changed my life because it was so cheap and terrific and convenient. And, um, you know, Nürburgring had an airport, much less Stewart. an international airport. It's so Stewart Airport. It's the new Norwegian hub. They're going to sponsor the podcast next week. Just watch. <laughs> the, um, I would tell everybody it's fantastic. If you're going to Ireland, they have flights to different locations on uh, in both the north and the south. <laughs> so there's there's a certain level of ambition to the book in terms of its what it's trying to do. So it's trying to capture the lives of these revolutionaries and sort of how they moved through really their whole lives and it's also got this kind of murder murder mystery almost makes light of it but it has a murder at the center of it and i'm curious at what point you knew did you know from the beginning that you wanted to try to capture both of those strands and then there's also the sort of there's the politics and the ira and everything else which is more woven in it's not like separated out into expository sections on chapters but all of that is in there that sort of raises a risk of like it not working you know like when you go that big and i'm curious if you knew from the beginning that's what you wanted to do and you were always driving towards that or that came along in the process that was always the ambition i mean it was helpful that this project started as a fifteen thousand word new yorker article and when I started the piece, I didn't know I wanted to do a book, but by the end of the piece, I, I knew I did. And that was a bit of a proof of concept. And the idea from the beginning had been, I don't want to write a history of the troubles. I want to approach this the way you would approach a novel. So you have really kind of about half a dozen characters and their lives all intersect. And we're going to follow them, you know, really over four decades. And that was a there was a <laughs> there was a high risk of failure in that but i thought that if you could do it right you would get a lot of the history of the troubles and you would get a the story of a murder and the way in which it kind of ties together these different people so that you'd have something that was gave you political history and a certain amount of pulpy true crime and there's a lot of spy versus spy kind of espionage and intrigue in there and that if you could weave all this together it might be satisfying, and I'm glad to hear you say that you wouldn't have picked up a book about the Troubles because in a way, the thing I kept telling myself was the last thing you want to do is write a book for somebody who's already read 10 books about the Troubles. You are mm-hmm. writing this for people who have never read a book about the Troubles and may never read another one, and if you can do it in an accessible way, you might have something. Yeah, I'm, I feel bad for the whoever the biographer, various biographers of Jerry Adams. Like, I would not read a biography of Jerry Adams, but especially <laughs> I would not read one after reading this book because I feel like... I understand something about Jerry Adams through this book that I might not learn from a sort of potted biography of him, even though you never talked to him. Right. That, that was part of it was to try and get close enough to these people, even the ones who I didn't talk to, and see them in. Um, it's not that I, I'm not judgmental, but come in with an openness to trying to see things from their point of view. 
that would allow for different readings of the book. So, you know, I did a reading two nights ago, and somebody who's been reading the book said, you know, Jerry Adams is clearly just a villain here. He comes across as this almost satanic figure. And then I did a podcast yesterday with uh, David Plotz, and he was like, it's impossible to read this book and not come out thinking that Jerry Adams like, fundamentally did the right thing. <laughs> and that Rorschach quality was very much what I was aiming for. Did you feel like you needed an answer in terms of the murder in order for the book to work? No, not at all. And this was both the most exhilarating experience I've ever had as a reporter, but also just a huge surprise for me. So I I wanted to know more about the circumstances of the murder, and I got to a point where I'd worked out Dolores Price's involvement, and I had a sense of another person who was involved, and I knew there was a third individual, and I knew the third individual was the shooter. And that wasn't a huge holy grail for me, because Mm -hmm. I always assumed that that third person was just anonymous IRA gunman number three. Mm -hmm. It was just some slightly random person. I mean, to go back to what I was saying about approaching it like a novel, so the test for me in terms of whether something went into the book was, did one of my characters experience it? There's all kinds of really interesting and important things about the Troubles that aren't in the book very much because they didn't impact in a very kind of first order way the characters that I'm writing about. Mm -hmm. So for me, if it turned out that the person who shot Gene McConville was some random dude who, you know, whose name I might have heard in passing, but who wasn't one of the people I was focusing on, I didn't really care as much. And the big surprise was when I did make this discovery almost by accident, just because there were two different sources had given me these two different puzzle pieces and they happened to fit together. And um, the person who it turned out to be was somebody who actually was already a character in the book. (laughs) Very much to my surprise. What was the moment of realization like? I mean, I was at home (laughs) alone in my home office rereading a transcript of an unpublished interview. This was the craziest thing. As a reporter, I'm sure you've had this too, where you... I'd gotten this interview, which I'd wanted to get for years, and it had never been published, and it was Dolores Price talking in great detail about her life. It's 30 pages single-spaced or something. Yeah, with this journalist who... Yes. And you get it and you're so hungry for it. So I immediately went through and I kind of, I was zooming in on all the stuff that seemed great. And um, I had a highlighter or something. And then after I'd done all my highlighting, the next day I went back and with a pen and went through looking only at the highlighted sections. And so I'm drilling even further down on the stuff. And then I'm going through little stars and exclamation points and deciding what's going to go in the book. And it all goes in the book. And it was only at the very, very end when I thought, God, did I miss anything on that first pass? So the book was finished, and I went back and I looked at this one section of the transcript that I had just kind of glossed over before, and right there was, I mean, all all the analogies are pretty hackneyed, but it was as if somebody else had given me a lock, and then suddenly I see the key, It's the and it perfectly fits yeah. this, this fact pattern that this other person had given me. So I... I think I started shouting <laughs> by myself in my apartment. 
<laughs> it never happens in a in a where in the moment with the people. You're always like st- sitting at the computer. Well, that was like, what was so strange. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I, I sort of looked around, and you know, my my dog looks up at me, just you know, uh, wondering what's happening. <laughs> there was nobody to uh, to share it with. Well, that's both that's exhilarating to hear, but also terrifying, and because I I think about that a lot. Where you go through something, you find some, especially a document, and then you oftentimes don't go through it another time or you are right. you you are just pulling out this stuff and then you know i would get to the end when i was working on my own book and sort of be like man a lot of this shit like no one's ever going to look at it again yeah. i'm the yeah. i might be the last person to like look at this in this detail and what did i there's no time for me to what go read it miss? all again like yeah. what is now lost well this is did you read that you you probably read that the robert caro um thing in the new yorker recently i haven't said oh read my it god about the uh, the lbj archives but he has you know his admonition um as he says turn every damn page and that's you know um i mean in his case it's an archive with millions of pages so uh you do wonder i was i literally managed to miss something in a 30 page document <laughs> um so thank god i went back to it i mean the one thing i would say as much as i i just want to emphasize because tone was a tricky thing in this book and uh so look, obviously I was tremendously excited, but I was also finding out the identity of a person who killed um, the mother of these people who I've come to know in my reporting. And at a certain point I was going to have to tell them. And so I don't want to, as a reporter, I felt a certain amount of glee, but at the same time there was also this sense that, you know, the, a sense of gravity set in. Right. Yeah. And I, I would think throughout the reporting process, you're holding sort of those those emotions in your head. I mean, is it, it is exciting to uncover things, but at the same time, you're uncovering things that are horrible for some of the people that are involved. Yeah. And look, in terms of the writing with the book, this was tricky too, because the nature of some of the genres that I like to play around with, I mean, true crime, and there's a whole series of pretty seductive narrative techniques that, that you can employ. And um, I'm a big believer in those. But you want to do it in a way that you don't lose sight of the human cost associated with these things. There's also this archive, which I, when I was got to the end, I mean, in the last third, I felt that the the archive was like the first time an archive has ever been used as a kind of like Chekhov's gun. Like the archive appears at the very beginning and you're like, oh, look at this, look at this nice archive. But I also, at first I thought, oh, this is where he got... He must have gotten so much reporting out of this. And then you get a little bit further and you realize you didn't, how frustrating was it to not get access to the yeah. archive? Yeah, hugely frustrating. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was very much the, the, the final scene of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? <laughs> and um, yeah, I did have access to one complete unredacted interview from the archive. Um, this guy, Brendan Hughes, is a big character in the book. And it's an amazing, you know, it's 300 pages of him talking about many of the events and characters in the book. But of course, having that and seeing how precious a resource that was, I think to myself, my God, what if I could have gotten these others? But in um, a way, you could have been drowning. I mean, you never, you always want to have too much. Actually, I was re-listening to when we talked last time and we talked about over-reporting yeah. uh, stories. But it could have made for a different book and not necessarily a better book in some ways. Well, yeah, look, I would always rather have too much and then have me be the one who makes the choice about what goes in and what doesn't. But to go back to what I was saying earlier about the the weakness of some of the literature on the troubles, I think, um, I think there's an embarrassment of riches problem, which is that these stories are so dramatic and you have these strange qualities because the place is so small where everybody connects 
in some way, shape, or form. So mm -hmm. you have different characters, but they all bounce off each other. And I think there's been a tendency in the literature to get a little bit encyclopedic because there's so many great stories to tell. And for me, the trick here was actually cutting things out. So I do think if I had had access to the whole archive, that would have been, there would have been a temptation to say, particularly if I had exclusive access to it, there would have been a temptation to say, well, boy, there's this amazing stuff about this historical event, which actually is kind of only tangential to what I'm doing here. And I would have had to fight that. Yeah, almost um, an obligation to use every great tale that was that's in those archives. Yeah, but I but look, I've I, so I've been working with the same magazine editor for 13, 14 years and Daniel Zaleski at the New Yorker and I think one thing that I learned from him along the way to a point where it's internalized now and I feel like I have a, a Zaleski in my head is you go out and you do a ton of reporting or there's some concept in a story that seems hard to get your mind around and you spend three or four days talking to experts and reading up on the literature and then you've got it and I think for a long time I had a tendency to want to on some level to say to the reader like look ma I did my homework you know I've gotten this and now so can you <laughs> and um, he's always just been merciless about asking if we really need that stuff yeah. you know, do we need 500 words of exposition here or can you do this in a sentence or two and the better I've gotten at cutting that stuff out, the more surprised I am by how well things work without it. <laughs> I had one more question about the archives, sort of a meta question, but one of the fascinating things about the archives as they appear in the book is that, just to give a little background, you can correct me mm -hmm. if I get something wrong, but they basically had this archive at Boston College where they, they went and interviewed people from both sides of the Troubles and they used people who had been involved to sort of conduct the interviews and then they said that these interviews would not come to light until after the people died. Right. And then there's this incredible moment where they start to realize that they have not thought through even what that means that is it after everyone dies or is it after that person dies? Right. And it seemed to me there were, I don't know if you meant to convey this, but there were actually just lessons there about how you tell people's stories and how you capture people's stories and the sort of thought that needs to go into what you're doing when you do that, which they clearly did not spend enough time thinking through. And I'm wondering if that, if you also think through that process, like the process of collecting the stories for this book and what it means for these people, or you try to keep out of your mind how they're going to respond or yeah. what this is going to mean for them. Oh, Some of them man. are still alive. That's a great question. Yeah. Including I, the, the murderer that you identify yes. is still alive. Yes. I think it would be irresponsible not to be mindful of that sort of thing. And certainly, you know, the resources I had to protect, I had to think about. Um, it's hard, right? Because I, I went back and forth and back and forth and I spent a lot of time over there. But at the same time, I don't live there. I don't have to go back and live in Belfast. Mm. And these people do. So that doesn't mean I'm not going to name the person who murdered Jean McConville, whatever discomfort that may cause for that person. But it does mean that there's all kinds of instances in which there were certain punches that I pulled because I realized that putting something in the book would expose the person who gave it to me, which would create a terrible situation for them. There are other instances in which people, I mean, there's a guy, Anthony McIntyre, who was a big source for me in the book, and he's a character in the book. And when I mentioned the lock and the key, Anthony McIntyre gave me the lock. And 
you know, he, he said, I know who murdered Gene McConville, and I won't tell you the name ever, but here's a clue about that person's identity. And after I made that discovery I told you about, I flew back to meet with Anthony and his wife, and we had dinner. And I said, okay, you gave me that lock. Well, I have this key, and I put them together, and I figured this out. And we had a strange conversation, right? Because what I said was, I'm going to publish this name, and if there's a reason why I shouldn't, you need to tell me why I shouldn't. And he gave me all kinds of reasons, but none of them were that I was wrong. Mm. And he never acknowledged, he would never say to me, yes, it it is this person. Hmm. But he also is an honest guy who wasn't going to lie to me about something that is true. I probably created a lot of discomfort for him. I'm sure there are people who are not happy about the fact that he gave me the first piece. Um, but I wasn't going to hold that back. And he knew what you were doing. He knew, I mean, yeah. he was fully informed of what you were going to do. Yeah. Well, I want to go back one second to something you said. You had sources you needed to protect mm-hmm. and that sometimes you would hold information back that would identify them or, or cause them some difficulty. And my question is, is that information that they identified or that you identified? Because my struggle is always people will say, don't burn me, <laughs> but they will then give you information that you actually can't necessarily tell if it will burn them or not. Yeah. They're not being careful. And the question is, is it your responsibility yeah. to be careful on their behalf? And how do you even know what will get them Yeah. Oh, man. I deal with this all the time. I just dealt with this in a big way on a recent piece for The New Yorker. But the... Um, it's hard. I mean, I, I don't think there's any one-size-fits-all thing, and I I tend to feel differently about... Like people in Belfast, a lot of the people I was dealing with are people who don't have a ton of experience dealing with the press, and I often will build in a little bit of a handicap there. I, I just recently did a piece, I don't want to go into too much detail, but where there were some people who were taking risks, telling me certain things, but they were people who were much more sophisticated players, and... You know, people who have lawyers and have money and have dealt with the press. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I was less inclined to make allowances for them and sort of feel like, hey, help me protect you because you're obviously not protecting yourself than I would be with somebody who was um, less savvy at the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't, what I always tell people is the recorder's rolling. I'm taking notes here. If you want something to be off the record, tell me it's off the record. But you have to know that when I sit down to write the piece, I'm not going to be pulling punches on your behalf. Yeah, but then we talked about this before, actually, in our previous conversation. Then they forget. They do. They forget. 15 minutes later, they forget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're stuck with how often to remind them. Like, what is the responsibility okay, so, for reminding them? You know what? This is So this is funny. We're getting a little meta here. But before we sat down, I was saying, I thought that when we did that last podcast, I had been working on the Amy Bishop piece while we... You know, I was working on it. it; hadn't come out yet. Uh-huh. And if I talked about that on that podcast, that's what I was thinking about was Amy Bishop's parents because I had had this experience where I went and spent a lot of time with them. She was a she was a we should say yeah. She, so she, she was a, a professor at the University of Alabama who, in 2010, shot. She was a mass shooter. She shot a series of her colleagues. And after that happened, it emerged that um, when she was a teenager, she had shot and killed her own brother at the family home in Massachusetts. And there had been one witness to this. It was her mother, Judy Bishop. And she came in and immediately said, I saw the whole thing, it was an accident. And 
for this piece, I was writing a lot about the parents of Amy Bishop who'd lost one son and then, you know, their daughter had become this mass shooter later. And there were questions in my mind about what they knew about the circumstances Mm -hmm. of her brother's death and whether it had been covered up. But I was spending all this time with them and they would speak in this very raw and personal way. And I would say to them, I would remind them, if you want to go off the record, you just say off the record because otherwise this could go in. And they would say, yes, yes, we know, we know. And we would talk for another 20 minutes and then they would stray back into that terrain. And so some of those moments in the piece that are very, very raw, where they're not just talking to me, but they're talking between the two of them, Mm -hmm. were moments that I'm sure were painful for them later to see in print. But I don't know what more I can do. Like at the end of the day, my at the point where my duty is to them and not to the truth, I'm not really a journalist anymore. Right. Well, let's talk about, I want to talk about a couple of other stories. Um, So speaking of write-arounds, this Mark Burnett story was wild to me because I feel like it's one of those that, so Mark Burnett being the the person who started The Apprentice, and it's like been out there since Trump started running, much less got elected, and no one did it because he won't talk. Like that's literally why that story has not been told. He, He does not want to talk to anyone about it. Yeah. And so what made you decide that you could be the person who could go do it? Um, hubris. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. How the, dare you? Yeah. The, um, I just felt as though he, what I saw was somebody who had quite cleverly and deliberately written himself out of the picture. And the more I dug into it, the more I felt like this guy is sort of the author of the Trump presidency in a strange way. I mean, there's Trump before The Apprentice and Trump after. Um, yeah, pre. Uh, you make a very good case that pre-apprentice Trump is not running for anything, much less being elected to. Well, any. he would periodically announce that he was running for president, but yeah. he wasn't going to. Yeah, but the notion of Trump as a and you talk to people who were out on the campaign trail, and they will tell you all across the country that there are millions of Americans who buy the notion of Trump as a tremendously successful business genius. And that was a an idea that really entered the cultural mainstream outside the tri-state area with, with The Apprentice. So look, I mean, on some level, I wrote a big piece about the Sackler family and OxyContin, and that was somewhat analogous in the sense that there, again, you had prominent figures in society kind of representing themselves as one thing, which in the case of the Sacklers was this big philanthropic dynasty whose name, you know, is all over art museums and uh, universities, and they're known for their giving. And in fact, most of their money comes from their company, Purdue Pharma, which produced OxyContin and was responsible for helping spark the opioid crisis. And they assiduously kept their name in the former realm of galas and... uh, art world, um, museum, academic type circles, and off of the latter, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is overdoses and death. And I feel like with Burnett, it was a similar thing, that once Trump got elected, Burnett and Trump remained close, but he carefully was, you know, sort of distancing himself without disowning Trump. And when you start one of these pieces and you're talking to Daniel, your editor, are you saying from the beginning, he's not going to talk. This is going to be a write-around. Are you saying, hopefully we can get him, but 
if we can't, I can still do it? Or what are the sort of parameters at which you enter? Well, that piece was Daniel's idea. Mm-hmm. So he suggested it. And I think we both thought it was pretty unlikely that Burnett would talk. I made, look, I made the case. And it's a funny thing. I always, I have a whole little spiel about why people should talk to me. And there's often a moment where they clearly think I'm being insincere. I'll say, look, here's why I think it's actually in your interest to talk to me. And they always come back with some version of, well, of course you're going to say that because all you want is the interview. And on some level at this point, I'm like, read my stuff. I Honestly, I don't care. Like you can, you can show up or not show up. I'm going to write the piece. And, you know, you saying no is not going to stop this. And so truly it is better for you to come in and talk, I would think. I mean, I don't... And so in somebody like Mark Burnett's case, right, it's very often the case that these people will try and stage manage an interview as much as they can. Mm-hmm. They'll say, oh, we want to do this on background. Here are the areas you can and can't talk about. And I wouldn't have agreed to an interview with him in which he said, I'll talk to you about anything but Donald Trump. I would have just said, forget it. Yeah, what's the point? Um, the, and those are the ground rules. Anytime you read an interview with Mark Burnett, you need to know, and he gives them all the time about his shows, that those journalists have submitted to those rules when they go in. Mm. To me, the idea that it's like, okay, so there's only so much real estate in a piece. And any place where I'm quoting you today, telling me whatever your message is, is someplace where I'm not going to be looking back at other things you've said in the past or interviewing other people talking about you. I, to, if, anyway, You can push out, even if you don't convince me, you can actually just take up space. Yeah. People, some people, do, I mean, Carl Icahn did talk to you. He did. For, it sounds like, quite many a bit. hours. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, I don't, I think it, it's almost always in people's interest to talk. But, and they, ne- they never believe me when I tell them that. But it's, you know, it's fine. And I, st- and I should say, I mean, I still, it's not that I would ever hit anybody any harder because they didn't uh, participate. I still try and give them as fair a shake as I can. I don't want to draw too stark a contrast, but I mean, it is the case that I feel like the Carl Icahn piece, it was fairly well established that like, he resigned his unpaid advisor position or was pushed out or whatever happened like right before the story came out, probably because he knew the story was coming out. And the Burnett one, it's not the opposite, but it's like that guy seems untouchable. Like yeah. you can drop all that on him and he just sort of like moves along right, right. Uh, and forgets about it. <laughs> I'm interested in, well, especially with those type of stories, are you going for that impact? Uh, I mean, I don't, these are interesting days for journalism, right? Because on the one hand, you do have a kind of high impact journalism. I mean, you look at Jane Mayer and Ronan Farrow, and they're slaying giants left and right. I mean, Harvey Weinstein, Les Moonves, um, mm-hmm. uh, Schneiderman, you know. And yet at the same time, you have all these journalists writing these stories about Donald Trump and these things that are pretty flagrantly criminal, and nothing happens. And it doesn't actually amount to much. So for me, I don't think of myself as a, certainly as an activist. What I want to do is go out there and write the piece. And so in Icon's case, it was satisfying that he, I mean, first the White House kind of fired him as we were closing, but he didn't know it. And then he, and he did this kind of snooker move where he waited until he thought the piece was closed to put out his press release, resigning the job so that he could essentially scoop me. But, and I was like, I was in Poland on vacation with my family. It was the <laughs> middle of the night and I got a call and we reopened the piece and we were able to get his resignation in uh-huh. at the last minute. So, nice try. You know, yeah. So I took some satisfaction in that. 
but that wasn't why I set out to write the piece. I don't, you know, I don't, I want to tell good stories and, and to the extent that there, there is corruption or injustice or some kind of perfidy that feels like it should be exposed. I want to expose it. And the rest is out of my hands. It's really for others. I wanted to ask about a different kind of story. I, f- I feel like you've you've done a number of stories over the last few years that have ended up sort of touching the news in unexpected ways. And one of them was the Anthony Bourdain profile, which was this very long, very in-depth profile that was wonderful at the time. But then it felt like when he died, suddenly people were maybe coming to you as a person who knew, you know, knew about Anthony Bourdain. I'm curious what that felt like, sort of being asked in some ways not to represent him, but yeah. to say, okay, now I'm going to go talk about this person's life because I spent a year you yeah. know, pro- profiling him. Yeah. It was strange to get those calls after he died. Um, and I did do a couple of radio things, but I didn't, at a certain point, I just started saying no to things in mm. part because um, there's a strange intimacy you develop with somebody when you profile them. And on the one hand, I spent a ton of time with him. We traveled together. We talked about a lot of really deep stuff and a lot of, you know, I have 24 hours of recordings of the two of us talking and we stayed in touch and we, you know, we did the New Yorker festival and he had me come and moderate another thing that he did after that. And we, we continued to hang out and an email and, uh, but, but I didn't ultimately know him all that well, you mm-hmm. know, and he was enough of a pro that even in the incredibly intimate moments that we had talking for that piece, I felt that he was showing me exactly what he wanted to be showing me. So there's a moment in that piece. I mean, one thing I'll say is that piece was supposed to be a fun lark for me. I had just done a big piece about the Boston Marathon bombing and a Mm -hmm. piece about the Lockerbie bombing. And um, they said, like, why don't you... They give you a fun one? Yeah, why don't we we give him a bonbon? And um, I said, I want to write about... I want to travel with Anthony Bourdain and write about Anthony Bourdain. And... About halfway through, I remember having this conversation with Zaleski where I said, this is getting really dark. I mean, he's, um, I had no inkling, obviously, that he was deeply depressed. But I mean, these questions of sort of happiness and why is it that he kept going at the pace that he did, all that stuff threaded through all our conversations. And at a certain point, he told me this story about how he had um, passed out and had this kind of near-death experience. And it's very dramatic in the in the piece itself. But it was one of those funny things where you're reporting, somebody tells you a story like that, and of course the little meta voice in your head is thinking, this is gold, this is amazing, nobody else has this. And um, I remember leaving the dinner that night and thinking, you didn't coax that out of him. Like he, <laughs> he made a very conscious decision to tell you this story which will go in this profile mm. which isn't to say that it's not you know obviously it was true but you see what i'm saying it's a difference it, like he it, there's somebody who has given a million interviews right and i i mentioned that just to say i had a in some ways i feel like a good grasp of who he was as a person but i never lost track of the fact that i was a journalist there profiling him you know we were we weren't actually bosom pals have you ever fallen on the other side of that where you felt like you have gotten close, so close to someone that you couldn't do the story or that the story fundamentally changed? No. I mean, the, the, 
it is very strange to write about someone who so like Ken Dornstein is a guy I wrote a piece about the Lockerbie bombing and this guy whose brother had been on the plane and he then spent the next 25 years obsessed with the Lockerbie bombing trying to figure out who had done it and the amazing ending of the story is that he he figures it out and Ken was somebody I'd known for years in a kind of arm's reach professional way because he'd been a producer at Frontline and we'd become friendly and like that's somebody I had real feeling for and actually developed great feelings for when I was writing about him and it wasn't the kind of story where I felt like there was any conflict of interest on my part and in a strange way in terms of some of the pathos in the piece like I there was a kind of empathy I felt for him that mm-hmm. I feel like comes across on the page mm-hmm. but no look I mean I'm, I tend to subscribe to the frog and the scorpion thing and I'm I'm the scorpion every time <laughs> Well, I want to talk for a second about your next targets, I guess we could say. Um, first of all, so the Sackler, you mentioned the Sackler piece, and I think it's public now that you're going to write a book about the Sacklers and mm-hmm. about all of that. I had a few questions about that. One was, I feel like there was an El Chapo book out there for it, for you if you wanted it, and I'm curious why you didn't write yeah. it. Because you'd written this big, last time we talked, you'd written this big piece about piece. the Sinaloa cartel, and here's El Chapo, and... Right the trial and I'm oh and then after that I guess so we probably talked after the Times Magazine piece but before I did the uh, 2014 piece yeah, yeah so you you had you had all the markers there to to do a book put those together and go sell a book yeah I mean never say never maybe it'll happen someday I don't um what, when I was talking earlier about the struggle to reconcile tone and the gravity of the content that's often tricky for me again because I you know, I like a little dry humor in a piece. I like cliffhangers. I like twists. And I feel good about both of the big pieces that I wrote about Chapo. I think in a book, I would really struggle with the imperative to make it entertaining. Mm-hmm. And this just like the stomach churning gravity of the consequences of that business and the war on drugs and um you know i sat in a bit on the trial in part just because i felt i mean literally because there were people i've written about who were testifying but even there that tonal dissonance between the idea that on the internet chapo is a meme you know there are people wearing chapo t-shirts and on some level inadvertently i may have contributed to this but then you get in there and you realize that it's true that there's this kind of the ballad version of Chapo and it is crazy and there are hijinks and everybody has these crazy names and there's this kind of outsized telenovela quality to it. But at the same time, you've got 100,000 dead people, right? I mean, and I just, I just don't know that I could have uh, figured out how to thread the needle in a way I could live with. But you, so instead, you're doing the stack, not instead, because you may run out of everyone to do that, but um, the Sackler book, and that one's interesting because I feel like in maybe slight contrast to the Troubles, I feel like there are some very good books about the opioid epidemic writ large, or yep. there's Barry Meyer's book, and, and there's Sam Beth Quinones. Macy's book, yeah. and Sam Quinones. And so what made you feel like, I don't want to go too far into the book, because mm. I feel like we'll want to talk about it some some years down the line but what makes you feel like there's a space for this particular book at this time there 
Well, look, it, it remains to be seen. <laughs> um, the uh, But you have to be optimistic at this point. If you're not optimistic yeah, at this point. No, I am. And look, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you why. So after my piece came out, so Barry Meyer deserves a great deal of credit because he really early on, I mean, very, very early days, identified the fallout from OxyContin and identified Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family in his book, Painkiller. And Sam Quinones then moved that ball along. And, and both of those books were out there at the point where I started to do the Sackler piece. So I mm-hmm. wouldn't have known about the Sacklers had it not been for those guys. Having said that, they both and almost all of the books about the opioid crisis have followed a certain pattern, which is it's this sort of traffic or Syriana model in which you're cutting back and forth between multiple characters who don't necessarily know each other. And in that respect, you see the pharma side of the story, you see the addict side of the story, you see the treatment side of the story, you see the drug dealer side of the, you know. And I think it's a great model and and I'm glad that people are doing that. That was not what I wanted to do with the piece. With the piece I said, I don't want the Sackler family to be one strand in a multi-strand narrative. I want to look at them very directly. Mm-hmm. And after the piece came out, there I think probably would have been the possibility to do a book then. This is about 18 months ago. But my concern then was from a reporting point of view, as much as I thought that that book would be a worthy book and a useful addition to the literature, from a reporting point of view, the Sacklers were kind of a black box in terms of their relationship with the company. Yeah. It's a privately held company, tough to find your way in. I just they don't want to talk about it. There. They don't want to talk about it. And then the attorney general in Massachusetts, <laughs> who, unlike me, has subpoena power, <laughs> subpoenaed a million documents and started doing these filings with a huge amount of stuff. And then there was a deposition that Richard Sackler did that I've been trying to get my hands on that ProPublica got a hold of. And certain people had come out of the woodwork since my piece came out and had reached out to me with stories to tell. And so at a certain point, I thought that the reporting is there and you could do a book that looks quite closely at the Sacklers. So it's not to discount the other elements of the opioid crisis, but um, you know, my book will not be a book that spends a great deal of time, um, like for instance, tracking the trajectories of individual addicts and their families. And um, it, it'll be like the origin story for the opioid crisis. So we're, we're living with the outcome every day and just the complete carnage of it. Um, but what happens when you go back? Where did this, what were the conditions that made this possible? And you've also set yourself up for another significant write-around situation. I can't imagine you're going to get a lot of those. I mean, maybe you will. Maybe I'm, they'll break gonna, down gonna, under your, gonna, your standard spiel. I'm going to go on record right now. I think it would make more sense for them to talk. But I, I don't anticipate that they will. All right. Well, good luck with it. Thank you. Thank you for coming back on the show. Great to be back. All right. I'll see you soon. Thanks so much. That's it for this week's long-form podcast. Thanks to Patrick Ratton Keefe for coming into the studio. Check out the book. It's called Say Nothing. I cannot recommend it more highly. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Thanks to my other co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Tyler McCloskey, and as always, our sponsors, Pit Writers and MailChimp. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. 
And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs> 